The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. An awesome God by hearing from His Word. Our morning's text is Galatians 5, 16-21, so I invite you to open your Bibles there now to Galatians chapter 5. We're looking at verses 16 through 21. It's good to be back with you, by the way. I, Even though I went to uh, the church I grew up in spiritually in Omaha, the church I was saved in and baptized in, it was an honor to stand in the pulpit from where I first heard the gospel savingly honored to go preach uh, the gospel there and see old friends and new faces, yet there's still no place like your own church. And so I'm really, really glad to be back. Glad to be back in Wyoming too. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Let's now hear as God speaks to us in His eternal Word. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This concludes the reading of God's holy word. May God now be pleased. God is blessing to it. Well, one of the unfortunate realities of a fallen world is war. And this is especially the case when it comes to civil war, where members of one's own country are fighting against one another. But despite all the weariness and turmoil, exhaustion, and casualties of war, it is a necessary thing at times in a fallen world. In a similar way, This is the way it is with believers. In this fallen world, every believer is engaged in warfare. And this is not only against the principalities of this world in the heavenly places, such as Satan and the kingdom of darkness, but there's also a war within, a civil war, if you will. Paul says here in our passage that there is a war between the flesh and the spirit. And this is a war that's going to go on until the day the believer dies. But thankfully we have a mighty helper and all the support we need for this holy civil war. What I want us to look at today are two elements of the believer's civil war. First, indwelling enemy And second, the identification of this enemy. So first, the fact that this enemy is within, that it's indwelling, it's in us. We see this in verses 16 through 17. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but this comes immediately after verse 15, where Paul is talking about challenging and provoking one another, walking in the flesh in this way. This is speaking about those who are conceited, those who are reviling one another, uh, those who are living according to the flesh. And Paul says instead of this, instead of walking in the flesh, he calls us to walk by the Spirit. And if we do so, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the flesh refers to the remaining corruption and sinful fallen nature uh, in us. I think Scripture calls this flesh likely because uh, this is part of our being born in Adam, the flesh and blood, a fallen nature in Adam. And this is why we need a new birth, why we need to be born again of the Holy Spirit. But we see here there are two opposing principles within every believer. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. Paul says these two are opposed to one another. They're going against one another. Uh, Peter puts it more strongly in 1 Peter 2. He says that the flesh wages war on our spirits. There's a battle going on inside every believer. A civil war. We want to do good and obey God, but there's this other side that wants to do evil and fulfill the sinful nature. And there's constantly a battle going on. Paul speaks of this in Romans 7 where he says he wants to do good, but then he finds that he does the things he hates. And that is the strange existence of the believer. Doing things we hate. Who does what they hate? Believers, because of this opposing principle and this civil war within. And Paul says here in verse 17 that these two principles keep us from doing what we want. And what he means is that the flesh keeps us from doing what the Spirit would have us to do. And the Spirit keeps us from doing what the flesh would have us to do. And we want to follow the Spirit. We don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do we do that? Well, Paul says in verse 16 that we are to walk by the Spirit so that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So this is a promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, it's this idea of staying in step with the Spirit, as verse 25 says in Galatians 5. Staying in lockstep with Him. Where He goes, we go. Doug sometimes talks about his dancing. I made sure to check with him that I'm getting this right. He's known as the dancing pastor. And he'll explain that one of the things you have to do when it comes to dancing is to match your dancing partner step by step. And that, that is hard to do. Uh, this requires staying focused on your partner's moves and steps until it becomes more natural. Well, in a similar way, we stay so focused on the Spirit that we stay in step with Him, keeping up with Him, following His lead. Verse 18, Paul says that this is being led by the Spirit. Another way of saying this. Where the Spirit leads us, 
we follow. We don't resist Him. We don't turn away from Him. We don't run in the other direction. But this brings up the question, well, what, is, what exactly does that look like? How do we stay focused on the Spirit? Because there's a lot of confusion in our day about this. There are many people who say that the Spirit moved them to do this or that. that the Spirit moved them to do the things exactly what they wanted to do. What, what, how amazing is this? That God, is, God and I agree. When in reality it was their own sinful hearts or perhaps indigestion or something like that. They use the very subjective mindset of the culture and ascribe to the Spirit within them things that they want to do already. God told me to do this and you dare not question me. I've had people tell me that God told them to get a divorce and leave their spouse when it wasn't biblical. There is also so much confusion over the Spirit that has come with the dawn of Pentecostalism over the last 120 years. People claim that the Spirit, whose fruit is self-control, caused them to lose control and fall into a frenzy and babbling and not making sense and being slain by the Spirit and other ecstatic experiences said to be of the Spirit. There's a lot of confusion over this. So what does it mean to stay focused on the Spirit? To be led by the Spirit? Well, I think there's two basic biblical ways. First is conviction of sin. And the second is being convinced of God's love. So first being convicted of sin. Jesus said in John 16.8 that part of the work of the Spirit is to bring conviction with regards to sin and righteousness. Whereas the unbeliever will suppress his or her conscience, harden it, ignore it, seek to justify himself, blame others, for it, have a worldly sorrow based in self-love. Oh, I wish I wasn't going through these consequences. I'm mad at God now that I'm going through these consequences. The Spirit will move the believer to respond to that conviction, to the conscience in repentance and godly sorrow. This is part of staying in step with the Spirit. Being convicted of the wrong we have done and the right that we need to do. But this is not merely after sinning, but also before sinning. In fact, this is likely what Paul has in mind here with regards to staying in step with the Spirit, to not gratify the desires of the flesh. So to give one example, uh, we can multiply the examples, but to give one example, a husband, wife, co-worker is criticizing you unfairly accusing you of something. And you feel that, that anger rise within. And your flesh tells you to lash out at that person and bring up the past sins that they've committed that you said you would forgive them. At the same time, the spirit within, maybe not as loud of a voice as your flesh screaming at you, but the Spirit is telling you to be patient, to not respond in anger, to respond in self-control, to control your anger, and respond in grace, and to not repeat their sins. So now you have a choice. Whom will you obey? Your flesh or your spirit? And by the grace of God, there's effort and sweat 
so to speak, involved in not giving in to the desires of the flesh, but obeying the Spirit. But this must come second to the other way in which we walk by the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit, and that is being convinced of God's love for us. Being convinced of His love for us. This is very important and an often overlooked aspect. Because a legalist, even an unbeliever, can be afflicted in his or her own conscience. They could feel guilt and shame over a wrong that they've done. And they know that they need to correct it and do the right thing. You'll hear unbelievers a lot of times say, well, that's not the right thing. There's a natural understanding of God's law, though they may suppress it. The legalistic Christian or church-going unbeliever who's self-deceived can hear a sermon, nitpick at the finer points of theology in it, or even come away with saying, yeah, that one point was a good reminder of how I need to do better in this area. But here is what the legalist or unbeliever is not going to walk away with. Not going to walk away with a sense of God's love. He may know that he needs to do better at loving God and others, but he will not walk away with a better knowledge of God for him. That love that motivates him to obedience. He may know that he needs to do better, but he doesn't know that God is for him and with him. His motivation is to, be, is to be hit harder with conviction. Harder with the law's motivation. Challenge me more. Let me rise to the occasion so that I can get this. I got this challenge. I will try harder if you just get on me more. What is lacking is the knowledge of God's love as motivation. And this is what the Spirit convinces us of. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit does. Romans 5.5 says that God has poured His love into our hearts. He has made us know within His love. How has he done that? Well, Paul goes on to say there, it's through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit convinces us of God's love. When describing saving faith, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. A legalist, on the other hand, knows God's law intellectually, but does not know His love intrinsically. Remember the definition of legalism from the Sunday school class we did a couple of years ago now. In fact, probably most of you weren't even here at the time. But here's the definition. It's knowing God, this is the definition of legalism. Knowing God's law apart from knowing His love. It's moved by duty to be righteous, to be a good person, avoid guilt and judgment, rather than being compelled by the love of Christ 
as 2 Corinthians 5 says. But the Spirit, whose work it is to glorify Christ, shows us the love of God in the face of Christ, convinces us of this love, so that we are now compelled to love Him from seeing His love for us. He convinces us within that Christ loved me and gave Himself up for me. For me. He gave Himself. He laid down His life for me. Me, a sinner worthy only of condemnation and eternal death, Christ took my place condemned. He persuades me that Christ suffered His whole life being under the law to perform its duties under testing so that I would be righteous in His sight, that He's the one who's righteous for me, that He suffers the curse in my place His whole life. And He changes my heart so that my heart believes and values the work of Christ in my place, not just in my head, but in my heart, moving me to love, adore, and worship Him. So staying in step with the Spirit means to meditate often on the glory of Christ, His love, His grace, His compassion, that He is gentle and humble of heart. In fact, first, or Second Peter says that when we're not growing, yes, we could put in the effort. Peter says, put in the effort. Be all the more diligent to grow in these virtues. But what happens when I'm not growing? Peter doesn't say, you're not putting in enough effort. Rather, Peter says, you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sins. The Gospel is the foundation for us pursuing holiness. That's what it means to stay in step with the Spirit. Now, the Spirit works through means. Yes, there is an inner work of the Spirit in our hearts, but He does this work through means. He makes these means effectual. He works through His Word. His Word both read publicly and privately and preached. He works through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These visible signs of His love for us, giving us a tangible sign that we experience with our senses. Baptism, a picture that we have been cleansed from our sins as water washes filled away from the body and we go under the water and come up out of the water. We know that by being in Christ, all our sins have been cleansed as surely as water cleanses filled from the body. And that we have died to Christ and our old self is buried, left in the grave. And we come out a new man. And the Lord's Supper, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good giving us this tangible picture of a body broken for us and blood poured out for us, but given to us. And that as we eat and drink and are nourished physically, so it is spiritually by the body of Christ giving Himself up for us. The Spirit works through those means. The Spirit works through these means by helping us to consider ourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ, as Romans 6 says. Paul says you first must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ as symbolized in your baptism before you could put sin to death. 
where baptism helps us with this. The Spirit works through prayer, which is not only asking God, things like, show me your glory, help my unbelief, help me in this sin, but also in meditation and talking to God about God, as we see in the Psalms. It's reflecting on His glory, reflecting on His goodness. He works through the body of Christ, which mutually builds each other up. And so not forsaking the assembly, keeping the Sabbath day holy, keeping the Lord's day His day, and setting it aside for both public and private worship to grow in our love for God is a means through which the Spirit works. So staying in step with the Spirit is committing yourself to His day. And as Isaiah 58 says, if you call my day a delight, you will delight in me. Now the legalist does not delight in the Lord's day, but comes to church out of guilt. And I'll come to church because I guess that's what I'm supposed to do, and I don't want to feel guilty about it, or look guilty. I want to look like a good person. But the believer who is walking in the Spirit says with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, or host. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of God. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. When can we go meet with God? Of course, we need the Spirit's help to make our hearts like this because we become dull. Now, notice from verse 18 that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The way to not be under the law is to be led by the Spirit. Now, remember what it means to be under the law. It means to be under its condemnation. It means to keep the law for life, do this and live. This is where your righteous standing before God, your acceptance with Him, getting eternal life is dependent upon your obedience. You staying out of hell is dependent upon your actions of obedience to God's commandments. This means that you are obeying from a fleshly mind, a slavish fear of hell if you're under the law. The spirit of slavery leading you to fear. But when we trust Christ's perfect obedience to the law in our place, then we rest assured that He has provided all the perfection, obedience, and righteousness that we need to stand before God as righteous. That He Himself is our righteousness. And that I add nothing to that for adding up before God in order to get life. And that is death alone on the cross bearing the wrath of God that we deserve has cleansed us from all sins. And this also applies to our sanctification. When we're under the law, we're trying to obey the law for the life of sanctification, oftentimes called vivification. That is walking more and more in the life that we have as if God has left it to us to do. So we also believe that we have been crucified with Christ. Our old self of deadness to sin and slavery to sin has been left buried in the grave forever. And we have been united to Christ in His resurrection. His very resurrected life is our life. Christ living in us. And so when we believe this first and foremost and foundationally, 
then we are not obeying for life, be under the law, but from life, from our union with Christ, relying on Christ. This is necessary for walking by the Spirit and putting this indwelling enemy death. The second element of the believer's civil war is the identification of this enemy. So any good warfare involves identifying the enemy that you need to put to death. And this is what Paul does here, even though Paul says these are obvious or evident. Verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul gives an extensive list here, but not an exhaustive list. That means he didn't list everything as is obvious by him saying, and things like these. So any deeds of the flesh, living in sin. And this list can be split up into four basic categories. Four categories are one, sex, two, serving false gods, three, strife, and four, surplus. I was listening to a podcast by my former pastor, Pat Abendroth, and he was giving preaching tips, and he says, don't alliterate. And of course, I listened to that yesterday, and it's like, well, sorry, my sermon's already done. So, But these are the four basic categories, sex, serving false gods, strife, and surplus. So first, sexual sins. There are three mentioned here, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Now, this word for sexual immorality is porneia. It refers to any sexual intercourse. Specifically intercourse that is unlawful. Uh, having sex outside the marriage covenant. This can be adultery where at least one of the parties are in a marriage covenant. It can be fornication where neither of the parties are married but still having intercourse. Includes things like prostitution. It also includes sins such as homosexuality because that's not a marriage covenant. That's not a marriage. And so to commit that act is Sin is sexual immorality and bestiality as well. It's any intercourse outside of the marriage covenant that is not lawful. And then Paul mentions impurity, which includes sexual sins that don't necessarily involve physical intercourse with another person. Things like pornography, certain websites, certain interaction in chat rooms. And sensuality, which is loose living and indulgence, kind of letting loose, going beyond restraints. Be inappropriate, uh, touching, flirting, that sort of thing. The next category is serving false gods. Idolatry. I'm just trying to use the alliteration of S's. Serving false gods or idolatry. And this is not merely bowing down to an actual image, but any false worship, any finding our identity and ultimate good in something that's not God, leading you to live for it. Whether it's money, hobbies, fishing, camping, hunting, or a relationship. It goes beyond just enjoying them with a grateful heart. But it goes beyond that to finding one's ultimate happiness and hope in them. Where this is my God and I 
serve it above all else. Paul then mentions sorcery, also known as witchcraft, things like tarot cards and palm reading, Ouija board, or other practices trying to contact spirits. Now what's interesting is that the Greek word that Paul uses here for sorcery is pharmakeia, from which we get our English word pharmacy. Looking at our resident, former resident pharmacist. Uh, and this would involve drug use because witchcraft would often involve magic potions and hallucinants, things that we call drug use now that people just get high on. So that's included as well. The third basic category is the most extensive one listed, and that's strife. Now, Paul mentions eight words here related to strife. I'm not going to get into all of them, uh, but the basic idea is you fight and quarrel. You don't get along with others. You get easily set off, yell and shout, you manipulate, you revile, you're an angry person. James 4 says the reason there's fighting and quarreling is because the passions are at war within us. We want something so badly that we will fight to get it, whether it's respect, approval, being loved and looked upon a certain way that we want to be. Uh, this is seen in the earliest stages among children. Children, do you fight with your siblings? That's the deeds of the flesh. That's sin. And Paul mentions jealousy and envy, which are root causes of strife. And I think the Reformed commentator William Hendrickson gives a good description of the difference between jealousy and envy. He says jealousy can be defined as the fear of losing what one has, while envy is the displeasure aroused by seeing someone else have something that you wish you had. Jealousy, fear of losing something that you have, envy, someone else has something you wish you had. Both of these are idolatrous and lead to despising others rather than walking in love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, love does not envy. And the fourth and final basic category is what I'm calling surplus. It's really overindulgence or, or excessiveness. And there's two sins on Paul's list here with regards to this, drunkenness and orgies. A drunkenness is being under the influence of alcohol where you've lost control. And it doesn't need to be a liquid substance. It could also be things like getting high, being an inhaled substance. In each case, you're losing control. You're coming under the influence of something so that it now controls you. And this not only refers to being drunk, but also being a functional drunk in the sense of I could still function, but I'm so enslaved to it that I can't go without it. Now, drinking alcohol in and of itself is not sin according to Scripture any more than eating food or having lawful sexual intercourse. However, it's when you, you go past the, the bounds that God has established. It's excess or enslavement. That's when it's sin. And lastly, Paul mentions orgies. In our day, these would be things like wild parties where there's debauchery and drunkenness college party or Mardi Gras, something like that. And then Paul warns at the end of this list, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is another way of saying heaven. Kingdom of heaven. It's the realm where God reigns, where there's no sin or the curse. In other words, those who do such things will not 
go to heaven. What's the alternative then? The alternative is hell. Hell is not a place that anyone wants to go to. Hell is unimaginable torment forever. Not merely a lifetime. Not merely a million years. That's a drop in the bucket. But forever, never, and ever, without it ever ending. You will never again experience anything good but unbearable torment. All your sins will be exposed. You will be mocked forever. You will be seen as a shameful, disgusting thing forever. You will experience the full fledge of shame forever and ever. And there will be no hope for things to ever get better in the slightest or change. Hell is a serious place. No wonder Paul gives this warning and has given this warning to them in the past. The stakes could not be higher. Now notice, this is for those who do such things, not those who have done such things. Do here is present tense. It's a present tense participle referring to ones whose life is characterized by these things, living in them unrepentant. This does not refer to those who have fallen into them, those who used to do them but have repented in them. It doesn't refer to a believer who is struggling against them and, and finds himself falling into them and, and calling out to God and seeking God's face and God using that sin to humble them. But they're calling out to God and they're seeking Him. It doesn't refer to them. This is referring to those who remain in this sin without repenting. Now you may be wondering, why does Paul say that if you do these things then you won't go to heaven? I thought we were saved by grace alone and not by works. So why, what does it matter what we do? Well, it's, it is because those who have truly believed in Christ have a changed life. As Paul will go on to say in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And as Paul said back in Galatians 2.20, those who have believed in Christ have been crucified with him, and they no longer live, but Christ now lives in them. And therefore, there will be evidence of this faith in a changed life. A changed life is not the basis of getting to heaven. Rather, it's evidence that you have been saved and that you are on your way to heaven now this is again not to say that there won't be great struggles or falling into sin. This is to be expected because of what Paul says in verse 16. The flesh and spirit are waging war within us, but they do not falsely profess Christ being self-deceived, maybe having grown up in church their whole life. They put on a face when they come here, but then when they close the door at their home, they're an angry person. Paul warns about those who are given into outbursts of anger, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's a serious warning here. If your lifestyle, and if you are living in these sins, you need to be warned that you are not on your way to heaven. Again, not talking about a struggle. I'm talking about you don't repent. You don't care. You justify yourself. You don't seek the Lord in this. You are not on your way to heaven, though you may have grown up in the church. There's a warning here. 
But the answer is not. Start obeying. Get your act together. Hurry up and overcome your sin. Let me yell at you to repent and then you will. Rather, the answer is, yes, there's a warning. Take this seriously, but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because you have never believed in Him. Though you may have grown up in the church, if you are a slave of sin still, call out to Him. Come to Him. For He will in no way cast out the one who comes to Him. And if you're unsure, what am I a believer? Am I not? Call out to Him. He will save you. Whoever you are, if you're a believer, He will continue to deliver you from your sin. He delights to do this. Admit your slavery to sin. Turn from it. Turn to the Lord. And He will save you from it. He will have compassion on you. He will pardon all your sin. He will rescue you. You will begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. As Jesus said, the Father will not give a snake to those who ask for a fish or a stone to those who ask for bread. And so if you call out to Him, He will certainly give you the grace of the Spirit. He will give you His Spirit if you ask, for He is full of mercy. He is full of love and compassion. And He delights to show this to all who call upon Him. As Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that if there's any in here who yet to believe in you, would you weigh on them uh, the, the danger that their soul is in? They may be young and think that death is not around the corner. They may think they have their whole life ahead of them, that they, they have plenty of time, and after indulging in sin some, that they can repent later. Father, uh, we know that that's not true. We know that uh, those sometimes die suddenly in car accidents. And if they knew that they were going to die that day, they wouldn't have gone out. Nobody knows the time that death will take us, but death will take every one of us unless you come back first. And eternity is forever. And there's a warning here. And we even heard a warning from the Scripture reading in Hebrews 3. Oh, Father, those in here who have yet to believe, may they not harden themselves to hearing Your voice. They have heard Your voice this morning through the preaching of Your Word. May they turn to You. May You weigh on them. And for us in here who struggle, oh, Lord, many of us who have besetting sins, and we look at this and we are alarmed. And we ask that this would lead us not to Relying on ourselves, but lead us to look into Christ. That there is abundant power and forgiveness in Him. And that we would once again be reminded of our, our duty, yes, to put sin to death, but that we can't do it apart from Your Spirit. And that we have to be first united to Christ, fully uh, saved in union with Him before we can even put one sin to death. 
So we ask that you would help us. We, we want to walk in holiness, but we know that's only possible through union with Christ and all that he's done for us. So we ask this morning, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to grow. Give us the grace we need to persevere and to fight this holy civil war, which can be weary. But encourage us through the scriptures. Encourage us that you are with us. Encourage us, O oh Lord, that you intercede for us. That you have not left us as orphans. That you are with us and for us. That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.